I hope you'll take a Bible and turn to Titus chapter 2. It's page 998 in these Bibles in the pews. Next Sunday really is a great time to invite someone that doesn't typically attend church to come and be with you. It will, uh, uh, we have uh, special music, and I'll bring a message, Lord willing, and it's kind of odd for me. I'm usually the one that loses my voice at Christmas time, so it's, it's kind of odd to hear just someone assisting when they typically have to fill in for me that's losing his voice. But uh, next Sunday, and with the brunch and so forth, if, if you have a friend or someone you work with that doesn't typically attend church, I, I I think you'll come if you don't invite them, and you'll say, oh, I wish I invited him or her to be here with me. We come to Titus uh, chapter 2, and I want to read beginning in verse 11 and following. Hear God's word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray together. Our Father, you... You say that your word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We pray that you'd use this in our lives now to give hope, that blessed hope of your return, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. About a year or so ago, a number of us here received a report about a Bible translation ministry uh, working to translate the Bible into eight different languages in a particular Middle Eastern country. And we read, and I mentioned here, how the day came that militants stormed their office and shot two of the five translators who were there. Then they shot up the building and the equipment and the computers that had been used in the Bible translation, and two, two of the remaining translators fell on top of the lead translator to protect him from the bullets, but when the terrorists ran out of bullets, they took their rifle butts and they bludgeoned those two translators to death. Then they fled. And the lead translator, one out of the five who was there, survived. And this announcement went out from this particular ministry, and you might think, well, Obviously, the announcement was that they were shutting down the ministry in that part of the world because it was too dangerous, or that they were uh, deciding that it'd be better stewardship to go elsewhere. No, that's not what the announcement said. It said they were announcing that the lead translator is putting together a new team, and they are redoubling their efforts in the same area. They were able to salvage one of the hard drives from the computers, and it contained all the work that they had done on the eight languages. So the work of the Bible translation is moving forward. How do you explain that from a human standpoint? How, why would anyone in their right mind stay in such a dangerous situation? Well, I think we explain it because they understood 
verses 11 and following of Titus 2. Paul had left Titus on the large island of Crete to put in order what remained. Those are the words he used in chapter 1. He left him there because there was a presence of the Christian faith, but it was in complete disarray on this very large island. So in a sense, Titus, the book of Titus, the letter of Titus, is a handbook for doing ministry in a difficult place. And if you've been with us last week in particular, when I looked at the earlier part of chapter 2, the basic point that that the Apostle Paul is, is telling Titus as he's seeking to be a church planter, pastor there on this island, is that the gospel is made believable by transformed lives. And he's talked about, in the previous paragraph, older men, how they're transformed by the gospel, older women, younger men and women, servants, and so forth. Transformed lives. Many of us here, I won't ask for a show of hands, but we came to faith in Christ because we saw what the gospel did in someone else's life. I had two friends that I grew up with that both were uh, converted, one much younger than the rest of us, and then the other fellow when we were in the eighth grade. And it was an overnight transformation. And I've seen many since then. But he is saying that that is the gospel transformation is what makes the gospel attractive to people. Well, in verses 11 and following, it's a pretty simple outline. It tells us what God has done in the past and what God is doing now and what God will do in the future. He begins by saying the grace of God has appeared. It's referring there to the coming of Jesus. Here we call that the bad news, good news. And in a summary of what that is, that that gospel of grace that has appeared, the summary of the message of the Bible is that God created our first four parents, Adam and Eve. They looked something like us. We don't know what race they were. We don't know what language they spoke. We, We don't know a lot. We don't know how old they would have looked if we were to see them. We do know that they had the same senses that we have, the five senses of touch, taste, sight, hear, and smell, but they had a sixth sense. They had a spiritual sense where they literally walked and talked with God. They had perfect communication with God. And they loved God since they, like us, were created to do so. But something happened, and what happened is they they broke God's command. They, They committed a crime against God. He had given them one prohibition. They were not to eat from a particular tree which they chose to eat from and it says the day they did they died but they didn't die physically they lived for a long time after that they died spiritually that sixth sense that perfect communication with God now was gone that's what died that day and they suffered the consequences of their crime against God but even in punishing them God promised that he would send a redeemer later Most of the Old Testament is written in anticipation of that Redeemer who would come. We know that we are born spiritually dead. We are born where Adam and Eve ended up, you might say. We have committed crimes against God. And he says that the punishment or the wages of sin is death. But it's natural for us to think that, well, if there is a God then I can do something to appease him. I can live a certain way. I can behave or or live by a code, and I can be religious enough. And somehow by doing that, I will gain God's favor simply by being a good person. If I just try hard enough, God will see the good intentions of my motives, 
and I will be right with him. He will accept me. But the truth is, what the Bible teaches, is there's nothing that you and I can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. That all the good deeds in the whole world that we could do are not enough because they cannot take away our problems of sin and death. Thankfully, God in his love and his mercy sent a substitute to take the punishment for our sins. Jesus became a man. No other substitute would do. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned, and he allowed himself to be arrested and tried and convicted and nailed to a Roman cross as a substitute for others. And when he was on that cross, God put my sins on him, and he died in my place, taking the punishment that I deserve. And he made a full, complete payment, and he died on that cross, and that was the greatest demonstration of God's love. His body was taken down from the cross. It was placed in a tomb. And his enemies thought, well, that's the last we'll see of him. But three days later, he rose from the grave. He rose physically from the grave. Death could not hold him because he had paid the penalty for sin and death. Before he ascended to heaven, he told his followers to go into all the world and tell people about this gift of eternal life, which God now offers through Jesus. In a crowd this size, perhaps you wandered in here today or came and you, as of yet, have not received the gift of eternal life. You may say, what must I do? Well, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for you, personally for you, and that his death was sufficient to pay for the guilt of your sins. You must believe that you cannot make yourself right with God by your own efforts. And that when he died, God the Father put your sins on Jesus and punished him in your place. And when that happens, you are enabled to begin to love God. So he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. That's what I've just described for you. Freedom from the penalty of sin and death for all people. For all people. Does that mean every individual in the world? No, he's talking about classes of people. He's talking about types of people, all types and races and social classes. That's what he's talking about because of the very types of people he's described in the previous paragraph. It's not a universal thing where everyone is saved immediately because of the work of Christ, every individual. You look at world population statistics, and this week I was reading on some of these, I, I just kind of have an interest in this because of the spread of the gospel. How many unreached peoples are there? But I was surprised, and some of you know this stuff very well, but at the time of Christ, about the time that this was written, there are estimated, and because they weren't keeping up with this real closely, it's estimated there were between 200 million and 600 million people in the world. 200 million to 600 million. And that shows you how inaccurate our, our estimates are. But, but that seems to be the, the pretty much accepted notion of what it was like in the first century A.D. Now, the world population increased by roughly 5%, uh, it, the mortality rate being so high. It did not increase but just a few percent for centuries, up until 1800. In 1800, that is the first time that the world population hit 1 billion. 1 billion in 1800. So it had taken that many centuries to go from 200 million or to roughly 200, half a million people up to a billion, half 
half a billion people up to a billion. Now, with the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s, uh, human population began to multiply. And the second billion was achieved only 130 years later in 1930. And then the third billion, 30 years later in 1960. And the fourth billion, 15 years later in 1974. And the fifth billion, and only 13 years later in 1987. So during the 20th century itself, just from 1900 until the year 2000, the population of the earth grew from 1.65 billion to 6 billion people in one century. Let me give it to you in a way you may understand. In 1970, there were roughly half as many people on the planet as there are now. Now, of the people that live on the planet, roughly 8% are Latino. 8% are Middle Eastern. 15% are black, 16% are white, and over 50% are Asian. Now this grace has appeared is for all, is for all. The verse in Revelation chapter 5 where John has a vision of, of the new heavens and the new earth, and it tells us how the lamb that was slain, how there will be these these singing before this lamb in verse 9 of Revelation 5, and it says, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, this is to Christ, the lamb who was slain, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So that is what God has done. He has sent the gospel of grace, and it's for all people. What is God doing now? That's verse 12. He's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To train means to instruct or to coach or to guide. Uh, it's a process. Training is a process. You, if you go through training, it may be something that takes several hours. It may take several years. If you're being trained to fly a jet, it's going to take longer than if you're being trained to, to just learn how to turn on a computer and use a basic word processing program. But there's training, there's mentoring involved. And who mentors us? The Holy Spirit does. When you come to know Christ, Corinthians says, we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So what God is doing, he's training us to renounce ungodliness, to deny ungodliness. What is ungodliness? You hear that term and you think, well, that's just a real publicly immoral, blasphemous person. No, that's not it at all. It might be it, but it's certainly not limited to that. Ungodliness just means living your life without God in view. Ungodly in that you just neglect God. When Jesus told the parable in Luke 12 about this rich landowner, and he, he had this bumper harvest, and he, the harvest is so plentiful that he says, you know, I've got these, these barns, but they aren't big enough to hold 
all the crops that I've or the harvest, so I will I'll tear down those barns and build new barns. And then I'll say to myself, Soul, you have much laid up for you. Uh, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus says, You fool. God says to him, You fool. Tonight your soul will be required of you. When you think about that person that's called a fool, there's no indication the man was a criminal. There's no indication in the parable that he was mean to other people. He may have been an upstanding citizen. He may have been president of his uh, service organization in, in his, his town. But he, he's called a fool because he's lived by leaving God out. And he did not recognize that those physical blessings had been sent to him from God. So to live an ungodly life basically is to leave God out of the picture. Uh, he doesn't enter the picture when you make your plans, when you set your goals, when you follow your desires. It's just, uh, just you know, our practical atheist, so to speak. And so that's ungodliness. When we're made alive by the gospel, we turn from that. He also mentions the renouncing of worldly lust. It's just not a general thing there, but when we are converted, then we turn from following our worldly, fleshly lust to turning toward God. Now, for most of us here in this room, the primary fuel of those worldly lusts is probably mass media. Television, movies, and right now, I would ask you, I would ask you, men, women, young people, are there things you are watching and pondering and thinking about that you know God is not pleased with and they don't help your relationship with him at all? And they may be funny, they may be enjoyable, but you know that they're not good for you. He tells the spirit to renounce worldly lust. Second part of verse 12, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. When he uses those words self-controlled, upright, and godly, he dealt with those in detail back in the first paragraph. It's a comprehensive summary of the Christian life. It's in the present age where our faith is proven. You think about this. When you do good deeds now, you normally don't see the fruit of that. You give money to certain things, and you hear someone maybe express appreciation, or we may tell you something tangible, a building that is built, or a, a Bible that was translated, or a church that was planted, and we say, well, yeah, I'm grateful for that. But you really don't see the fruit of your good works when you help someone, when you do something anonymously, when you, it's, it's rare that you see the fruit of your good works. And it's intended to be that way. That's why in Matthew 25 it says, the king will say to those on his right, come who, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And it says this, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. The point there, I want to comfort you, is you probably will not see the fruit of your good works in this life. But you're playing for an audience of one, and he sees them. And that gives us assurance of that. 
Well, what will God do? What God does has done in the past, we have the appearance of the gospel of grace. What he is doing, he's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly lust. What will he do, and that's in the future, and that's the blessed hope. We now wait for the blessed hope, or happy hope, or joyful hope. What is this blessed hope? It's a term used primarily here and elsewhere in the scriptures to talk about the return of Christ. The Bible teaches Jesus will return. In John 14 and elsewhere, he said he would return. In Acts chapter 1, to the disciples, when they're standing there watching after Jesus has ascended to heaven, the angels said that he would return. The New Testament makes the assumption he will return. Jesus could come back at any time for his church, that is, for all believers. And it will be announced, the Bible tells us, by the voice of an archangel and God's trumpet call, and the bodies of those who have died will be raised and be joined with their souls. And then the bodies of those believers who are living on earth will be changed into a body like the Lord's resurrection body. So how should this affect us now? Knowing, hoping, hoping being convinced of, that that will happen. Well, it gives motivation to live for him. We anticipate Christ's return, and so we seek to live in a godly way. And it gives us joy to persevere through the trials of this world. When I was in high school, senior in high school, was when God really transformed my life. And I had a very antagonistic, unbelieving friend who noticed it. And after giving me a hard time most of the year, he began to ask me serious questions. And so a speaker from Campus Crusade for Christ, who was a national speaker, came to our town. And he spoke at our school. You could do things like that then in big public high school, and he talked to clubs and so forth. And my friend named Bart, he, uh, he really connected with this guy, and he liked him. And, and the fellow speaking noticed how attentive Bart was. He, out of groups of 50, 60 people, he's, he said to me and some of the leaders that had brought him there, uh, that guy is paying close attention. So we set up a lunch, at a fine lunch at McDonald's, and uh, I picked up Bart, and then we met him there on a Saturday, met the speaker, Gene. And uh, they sat and talked, and I went inside, and he presented the gospel to him, and, and Bart came to faith in Christ right out there at a picnic table at a McDonald's. And we took him home, and then Gene said to me, now you need to get with him this week, and you need to cover two things. You need to go over the parable of the sower, and you need to teach him about the second coming of Christ because that's what will give him hope in the Christian life. We deprive ourselves when we don't think about the return of Christ. That blessed hope. The early Christians thought about it continually. They expected it to happen at any time. Often they misinterpreted the events thinking when it was going to happen. But he gave himself and he redeems us and he produces in us a zealousness for good works. I want you to see that. That very last verse 14. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There's a wrong assumption that if you've got your mind set on heaven, you won't care about this life. The old saying, you know, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. But the truth is we have to be so heavenly minded in order to be earthly good. Because the proper response to having the security of God's love will be to love him and to obey him. A few years ago, I went through a 
three or four month period, you call it clinical depression, call it a nervous breakdown. They, in Jonathan Edwards' day, they call it the melancholy. Call it extreme fatigue. We give it normal label, all sorts of labels uh, and euphemisms. But I, hard to, I don't talk about it because I don't remember much. It was about four months of complete darkness. I didn't, I didn't have energy. I couldn't make decisions. I, I sat down to pay a bill one day that I pay on the computers. Forty-five minutes later, I'm still staring at the keyboard. I just couldn't do anything. And my wife was God's minister to me that summer. Well, I didn't like what I was seeing in myself at all. Who wants to be around somebody that's down all the time? You wake up, it's dark. You, all day long, it's dark. At night, it's dark. So after a couple of months of this, she, I would get up in the morning, she would go exercise, then she'd come back about 10 a.m., and we would sit and pray together for about 30 minutes. And I'd tell her what I'd been reading. By that time, later I could read. But one day I said this, I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm saying. I said, Barbara, why do you put up with this? Now, I wouldn't do anything to her except nothing. I was just worthless, so it seemed. I mean, that's the way I felt. I said, I don't like what I'm seeing. I don't like to be around me. Why do you? <laughs> this is your preacher talking. I tell you I've got issues, a whole bunch of them. <laughs> and she said, because I love you. And you're the man I married. And I love being with you. Now, do you think my reaction was, "Woo! now I can go out and raise all sorts of cane. I can violate my marriage vows. I'm secure in her love. I'm going to go out and be unfaithful and do whatever I want to do because I know that she loves me no matter what. Is that the response? No. It's me remembering, uh, though I can't remember much from that time, I remember that. It's like, how can I love this person? How can she love me? And that's what happens when we grip by the gospel of grace. We respond to God's love, and we're zealous for good works. Why? Because I'm trying to gain his love? No, I'm sealed in his love. He loves me, and it's not determinate upon those good works. But now I want to do those things out of appreciation and gratitude. I'm out of time. The Puritans taught this truth in the form of an oak tree. I'm going to close with this. They taught this power of a new affection, that when we love God, then it, we want to live a godly life because we will love him more than the worldly flesh and the other things we loved before. And they had this picture of a live oak. And there are so many trees in so many different types that have leaves, and with a live oak, as some of you know this very well, though the leaves die, they stick to their branches through the winter. You ever notice that? The leaves are still there. They're not in your yard. What eventually forces the leaves from the tree is not the wind, even like what we're having this weekend. It's not the cold that causes the leaves to, to fall off. But it's when the new life of springtime wells up inside the tree and inside the branches and it forces the dead leaves to fall off. And the Puritans said in a similar way, though we are God's people, there yet clings to us affections for evil that we must confess. 
And these evil affections are replaced by an eagerness for good only as we are consumed with Christ's grace and it wells up within us and it ultimately drives out the old affections with the new life that is profound love for him. We live our lives between the first Christmas and the second. We're tweeners. That's where we are. We're between the first Christmas and the second. We will reign with him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for our brothers and sisters around the world. We will be joined in heaven with people from every tribe and nation, kindred and tongue. We thank you that we are part of a worldwide enterprise of you building your church through faith in Christ. May you give us a zeal for good works that comes from uh, apprehending and comprehending your love for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.